and welcome to episode 121 of Link to the Cast, your weekly dose of video games and nerd culture ephemera. On the show this week, Nindies fill our hearts and empty our wallets, Mark discovers two Game of the Year candidates, every game ever is back for some reason, and our book club this week tackles a game that is, in a phrase, peak Japan. It's Mystical Ninja starring Goemon. Let's start the show. This is Link to the Cast, episode 121 from your friends over at linktothecast.eu, available on all your favourite podcasting platforms and very selected recording call platforms, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podcast Addict or Stitcher. I'm your party host and beleaguered IT technician, Dave Ryan, and I'm joined uh, by a man who is very stressed out at the moment, the platforming prodigy that is Mark Robinson. How are you, my friend? I hate technology. (laughs) I I think this is where we're in the process of trying to shift from one way of recording to another after the last few weeks of um this is our second day in a row trying to record this show we got about 15 minutes in yesterday before we realized we couldn't record or that it hadn't recorded and then no, it, just, we... it recorded you that was yeah well you know that's what the people are here for uh, hey. <laughs> but uh, how are you, my friend? Technical difficulties aside, I don't want to do this three weeks in a row. On the I'm fine. I'm just, I'm hungry and I'm annoyed. And uh, that's a combination that doesn't work out very well for anyone. So um, I'll survive. I'll get over it. I'll uh, I'll pull my, my trousers up and just carry on. So, yes, hey, I'm indeed. fine. But you know, every cloud has a silver lining. We, we saw each other in person this week. We did. That was... Which is... An increasingly rare situation. Yeah, I know, right? Like, I moved out of yours, what, like five, six months ago? And before there, that, there, I, I saw you for about two years straight. And I've seen you, like, twice in the last six months. So, yeah. um, but it's fine, because you'll have a dog yeah. soon. And then yeah. I will be around every weekend. Yeah, like, we, I have, we still... I have legally appointed myself as godfather of your dog. <laughs> Dogfather, please. <laughs> if you're, you're going to say it, use a pun. All right, fair enough. Um, yeah, like, we, we still talk on the regular, but it's a thing where, like being adults and living in different places and leading different lives it gets a bit harder to to meet up every now and then we kind of floated the idea yesterday when we were trying to fucking cobble this shit show together uh that maybe we should have like a standing engagement to uh to go to token and play some uh, arcade games and eat some food indeed um i'm really kind of like I, this is kind of getting off the point a little but i'm really good at because of like what a like like a cult arcade game it's become that Windjammers hasn't shown up in Token yet? Well, I don't know. Like, every time I've been to Token, they've had different arcade cabinets there. And I was actually... That mo- is true. I was most disappointed that um, they had, like, a real old-school Tetris uh, cabinet in there. And it's not in there at the yeah. moment, because I was in there a few days ago. I know, I know they were having... Uh, they've had trouble with that machine before. Uh, the CRT was broken in it. Remember the time we played it? Yes. And those those CRT monitors, like I'm, I'm not going to turn this into like a, a Peter Brown Je- Jeff Gersman special where they get into the nitty gritty on how to build arcade boards and stuff. But uh, they don't make CRT monitors anymore. Um, so they're very hard to source. So if something goes seriously wrong with a proper arcade machine and you don't want to just turn it into like a, a hub for ROMs. Um, 
it is an expensive and arduous process to not only source the materials to fix it, but to find somebody who is able to fix them themselves. Well, I mean, going back to your your thing about the Windjammers machines, I can't imagine they're exactly easy to come by. Like we no. have, we have a, an arcade cabinet in the office, but it's it's an emulator basically. Yeah. Um, so it has like nine hundred odd games on it, but you can't really use that in a place like a, a an arcade games. Yeah, uh, people people come there for the the authentic. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, I mean maybe they could spin it, do a nice paint job on the outside and just have the one mm-hmm. game available, but yeah, I'd imagine getting hold of a Windjammer's machine would be difficult and I'd imagine that the uh the the sticks, uh, the analog sticks would get busted on a pretty regular basis because I have noticed that a couple of the cabinets they have in there um it was I think it was Turtles in Time, or it was one of the the Turtles games. But the uh, the analog stick I was using, it would go right, but it wouldn't go left. Um, mm. And I also think it wouldn't go down as well, which is a bit of a problem because there were part of the levels where you needed to go down. So I was like, well, I guess this is game over. Well, no, I think it was the X Men arcade game they had there. So, but you know, that's what happens when you have lots of people playing you know every day so um yeah but definitely i think a sort of regular intervention at token would be mm. would go down a treat but they don't do hogarden there so i know right we'd have to like go back and forth between there and the grand social or somewhere like I'll that just, we'll just make a petition indeed that's that's uh, what's all the rage these days i mean oh yeah all bars should have hogarden <laughs> they that's really just, should that's just my point of view my fridge always has it so why can't they the lazy fucks um Look, we got a lot to talk about this week, so should we just get into it? Yeah, I got him. Playing this week. Hey, check it out. I learned the baseline from Final Fantasy 2. Scott, you are the salt of the earth. Well, thanks. I meant scum of the earth. Thanks. Mark, on the, the aforementioned uh, visit to the, the new kind of... Um, office nerve center i have built here with all my my consoles and shit and i I put a couple of games in front of you for your attention that i thought might be uh right up your straza shall we say um i think the first one that we should talk about we've talked about it for a couple of weeks on the show is is dead cells you got your hands on dead cells for the first time well firstly i don't want you putting anything up my straza but um (laughs) yeah dead cells uh has been quoted to me as a very Mark Robinson game. Um, and if anyone wants to know what a Mark Robinson game is, pretty much just play Spelunky. Um, so I'd seen, and I think I know, uh, noted this last week, that I'd seen a bunch of people talking about Dead Cells on Twitter while I was away in Canada. And it got mm. me excited, um, just from the things I was uh, reading about and what I'd been listening to in a couple of places as well. Um, so I actually I had a choice between Dead Cells and Hollow Knight, and I ended up going for for Hollow Knight for I think mostly I think just for the the artistic uh, style of what Hollow Knight looked like, um, and actually I had been recommended it by a few people, but yeah, Dead Cells is this <clears throat> roguelike Metroidvania uh, that has this it's it's a pixel art style but it's not a retro style pixel art looking game kind of reminds me of like original prince of persia in some ways if they sort of high def that with with a lot more pixels to work with yeah um and it clearly has inspiration for a number of places from the likes of dark souls and spelunky 
uh, and a couple of other uh, games of that nature. Um, and the the idea is that it's it's procedurally generated, um, and you have a number of levels that you go through, uh, and you can pick up perks and buffs along the way, um, and you can obtain like permanent ones that you can then use when you start a, a new game each time. Every time that you die, you go back to the start, which is you know the, the nature of a roguelike. Um, it's a combination of, of platforming and combat. Um, it's like 2D side-scrolling. It's If you want it to be, it's a very fast-paced game. I noticed that for me, as I was playing it, after about 10 minutes of grasping the controls, I was kind of just whipping along um, at, at a mm. pace. And it's very satisfying to move. It's a very satisfying game to, um, to, to run around in. Uh, I love the way it looks. Uh, I, I think that the the character design, the the enemy design, and the general animations are very fluid, um, in a way that some of those kind of older pixel art style games don't quite manage. But this taking advantage of of modern technology, it's a very slick, fluid kind of game. Yeah. And yeah, it's the the combat isn't anything particularly advanced, but it works, I think, for what the game is trying to be. Um, yeah, you've. I presume you've been playing it a little bit more, like over the last week or so. Do you have any more kind of thoughts yeah. on it? Yeah, well, I think like I, I I won't be too far off like where you're at with us in, in terms of impressions. I, I really like the kind of in a, in a year where we bemoaned that a lot of kind of Metroidvania games are coming out and they're subpar. Um, this is one that, well, as you say, it's not revolutionary in the things that it does and its combat mechanics or its traversal or anything like that. And it's not evolutionary either. It doesn't really add anything on you haven't seen before. I do think it's one of the better attempts at a modern Metroidvania game. And that kind of the... It, it's a very Moorish experience. Uh, you do these runs, they last like, I don't know, 10, 20 minutes, maybe longer. You die and you just want to go back and hit one more run every single time. Yeah, uh, it it definitely has. I mean, I only did one run through of it, um, but it definitely has that spelunky binding of Isaac type one more run experience. It's definitely one of those kinds of games, uh, and I can see why people got addicted to it. Addicted to it pretty quickly um, because if you die within a couple of minutes, then it's you know you just uh, dust off and go again. If you do like a solid half hour run I can see you really kind of like right I'm in the groove now I'm going to give it another go and I think as well and I may be way off because I've only done the one run through but um, what um, I think is is a detraction from a game like Binding of of Isaac sometimes is that that game is kind of like a run is a little bit dependent on the items that you acquire Um, not always but you can, within like the first three or four rooms, just get a streak of just some really shitty weapons. And you can overcome that if you are good enough, but it's very, very difficult. And I do feel that um, Dead Cells is a little bit more dependent on just your overall skill, uh, and then the the perks and the weapons that you use are just like added benefits. Yeah, um, I, I think the, the, the build-out thing, as well as kind of, uh, like you said, a, a shitty 
loadout you'll eventually be able to get over and and kind of be good enough at the game to, to overcome whatever procedural generation stacks against you but I, I i think the the variety of different gear you can get um and the kind of like the different effects and dps's that get added to weapons the more advanced versions of weapons you get the longer you last and the further you dive into the game uh helps you build a bunch of dynamic different loadouts that uh i, I think no matter what way you like to play these games where you're more if you're more cautious and prefer range strikes there are a bunch of bows that do different things and that can help you out there uh, if you're up close quarter combat there's a bunch of stuff there and uh, some of the projectiles you can use in the game if you get good at that like you were using the the very basic projectiles uh kind Just of sort of uh, what, yeah sort them out to kind of like keep your distance as well be able to stagger the guys uh when you can't quite reach them um so there, there's something in it for every type of player of metroidvania um or or that kind of like procedurally generated game uh I, yeah i just really like it I, I i really appreciate the the art style the the enemy design uh there's there's some really cool funky enemy designs going on in there um, you made it to one boss battle with the the concierge. What what did you think of the the boss battle situation? Uh, so I wasn't. It it felt quite grindy. Um, you like it's it's fine having a a, a bullet sponge or a, a damage sponge, or whatever you want to call it. Um, but you can only do that if the actual combat or the actual start the what you have to do to, to take on the boss is interesting yeah. um and it, it's very repetitive that that particular boss um mm. so i wasn't overly fond of that 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 was definitely the the weakest point of my uh experience with that run um yeah. so i don't know what the other bosses are, are like if if they change up in any way but yeah that felt a, a bit repetitive it wasn't wasn't what i enjoyed about dead cells so i i thought that was going to be the game that really made an impression on you but then the next game we turned on may have stolen your heart uh, and a game of the year nomination for you already and that game is called minute isn't minute just a wonderful game it's it's really special i, I hadn't had a chance to actually get into it myself before um you came over because i'd been just stuck in dead cells and a couple of other bits i've been playing uh so since you've left since i watched you play the your first few runs on minute and um yeah i just that night i just sat down with the switch and i started playing it and i've kind of i've gotten to the point now where i have most of the game beaten i think um but yeah talk talk to me about minute what what is minute so minute is kind of like a, a top-down Zelda um, where the the core mechanic is that each playthrough, each run of the game lasts 60 seconds, which doesn't sound like a thing that should work, but surprisingly it does. Um, the best way to think of it is take any kind of puzzle or, or element of a top-down Zelda, Zelda game and condense it down to 60 seconds. So... If there is an item you need to collect, um, it is within a minute's reach. Um, so, you know, as you wander around, you'll quickly get an idea of the environment uh, and the landscape and, and kind of parve out, okay, what is the quickest way to get from point A to point B? Um, you'll 
discover items that unlock other areas or are like part of a, a chain um, to be like a, an item that you trade with someone to get another item or keys to unlock dungeons, uh, torches to light up those dungeons and the dungeons that you find are dungeons that can be done within a minute obviously. It's a very uh, bite-sized chunks of gameplay. Um, and you think very quickly, like, well, how the hell, like, how long can this game be if I can only get anywhere within a minute? And the the idea is that you have different save points or different houses, uh, and when you reach one of them, uh, the next time you start, you'll start from that uh, particular house. So that's how the, the world eventually opens up. Uh, it has a very uh, just vibrant and, and chirpy soundtrack it it has elements and vi a vibe uh in its characteristics uh of undertale uh which is a game that i adore um and this is like undertale where undertale subverts the the uh, rpg genre this to a degree subverts the uh, sort of top-down zelda adventure type adventure yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, give me more of your your thoughts on it. Well, the, when we talked about this yesterday, when we tried to fucking have this discussion, I think the Zelda it most aligns with for me is Link's Awakening. Uh, in as much as it, like, if you ignore for a second the sixty seconds ticking clock, uh, the idea that it's this weird and wonderful self-contained world of getting. Uh, a very strange item to accomplish a very strange task or puzzle. Um. I'm really one of the, like I'm in love with the simplicity of this game. The simplicity I I drew comparisons when we were playing it to the likes of Downwell, um, where it just really strips back to only what really needs to be there. A very simple black and white aesthetic. Um, I really enjoy just how strange some of the characters that inhabit the world of Minute are. Like just walking up to there's a bar nearby where you start the game. And there's just a dog and an eye patch there. Um, there's an endless desert in the game, and around there, there's a sneaker shop. And the first time we got to the sneaker shop, one of the characters standing outside it. So the way you, the way characters talk to you is, if you walk within a certain kind of like right up beside them, a speech bubble will come out. Uh, and this this character just said some, just started like burying the desert, it's like this dumb desert goes on forever, <laughs> and I don't like it. Um, so yeah, it's it's weird and wonderful. Um, the puzzles range from there are some very satisfying relatively easy puzzles that I think even people who aren't crazy about the, the kind of puzzles in those Zelda style adventure games will be able to solve and can get something out of this game um, and then it ranges up to some maddeningly difficult, difficult puzzles like I'm on the last few puzzles now and I'm just having a look at one of the one of the very few things I'll say is positive about Steam community forums is that they are really good about spoiler tags. So you can have a look at the discussion on puzzles without spoiling the solution. And there are some puzzles that as of a couple of months ago, a lot of the active members of the Minute Forum still couldn't figure out how to solve. Yeah. Um, and like, I, I don't want to spoil what those puzzles are because I think people should go in fresh, not knowing whether this is a difficult puzzle or an easy puzzle I'm about to try and uh, master. But yeah, I, I really love the game. The, the 60 second uh, gimmick is like, I thought it'd be an incredibly stressful in, in, in theory. And it's not unstressful. 
there are certainly times where I'm running it very close to the end to get my my little bit accomplished before I start the run again. Um, but I think it's really novel, um, a really novel approach to putting another constraint on you because puzzle games and adventure games are all about constraints that work logically on the player to guide them towards the path to the solution. Um, and I think that the 60 second timer works great for that and the way they've, again, designed all the puzzles in the game that if you run at it right, you should have more than enough time to complete within your 60 seconds. And then another thing that we were remarking on, it's simple, it's not always there, sometimes it's a little bit sparse, but the music in this game and the the, the sound effects are uh, very, very charming, I think. Yeah, and just to go back to uh, one of those points, like, so it uses a timer, um, not unlike the the countdown in Majora's Mask, but the stress with that is the average run-through of a three-day cycle can be anywhere from, like, an hour to two hours, where here, you know, it's a minute, so if you get 15 seconds into a run and you fuck up, you, you know, you're not losing that much time to immediately just kill yourself and start again. Um, yeah. So it has that kind of uh, immediacy about it um, and you know it's definitely that kind of game where you literally could play it for a minute and accomplish something and then put it down and then come back in you know an hour's time uh, just a really cool concept that actually is fleshed out in a way that I was very surprised by because I remember hearing about this game a few months ago and I was immediately drawn to it because of how it looks but I couldn't wrap my head around that how exactly like how does a game work where you die every minute and that did actually kind of keep me away um but yeah as soon as you start playing it 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 all comes together and it all makes sense yeah when you hear you die every minute you start to conjure negative things like you think of like dark souls where it's not making you die every minute but you probably will die every minute if you're not very good um but yeah we really kind of should have given it more of a chance at the time and not run away just based on that 60 second timer because I think we, we both had a, a lot of fun uh, the, the last game I want to talk about here and it's just for a minute I want to mention this because I was just playing it before I was uh, I came on the show uh, here and that's Donut County uh, Mark apart from the trailer I showed you in here at the weekend do you know anything about Donut County uh, I know there's a hole, and that's what you play as. And at some yeah. point, um, I'm I'm going to download this on my Android uh, tablet. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so Donut County is this game made by Ben Esposito, who uh, I was looking, I was trying to look up his CV uh, online, and I think the the most popular game that people might know him from is the Unfinished Swan. He he worked on the Unfinished Swan. Um, and this, again, much like The Unfinished Swan, is published by Annapurna Interactive, who are like, a, in the back of my head, they're like the the indie super curator of the day. Um, a lot of the kind of more strange and offbeat uh, indie games that I have played in the last few years uh, have come from Annapurna Interactive. Um, yeah, as Mark said there, basically it, it's a, a really kind of um, cute charming and funny puzzle game of a sort uh, where you play a hole um so you're in donut county um the the, the loose storyline is that you there's a girl who's friends with a raccoon the raccoon is running a donut shop 
and uh, there's a conversation that happens at the start, which is like, oh, yeah, you know, come on down to the donut shop. Uh, we'll hang out. And then it just goes six weeks later and the entire town is 900 feet underground. And it turns out that the raccoon had been using an app to control this hole that was moving around town and sucking everything in the town into it. And the game is structured by, there'll be a little cutscene back underground where they're all like, why the fuck did you do this? You fucking idiot. And he's like completely trying to skirt responsibility for it. And then it will like, it will tell the story of how one person fell in the hole and that'll be your level is going to where that person lives. And the way the, the puzzles work. Um, so, uh, there's kind of two layers to it and the very basic way that i think even younger um kind of less skilled puzzle game players would be able to get on board with is the the basics of getting everything to fall down the hole uh where you kind of go in order of size from the smallest thing that will fall down the hole on the map to the largest thing until you've gotten the character you're supposed to get to fall in the hole sometimes the character is just walking around sometimes you have to do things outside that coax them out um and sometimes they're like uh, there was a level i played where they're uh, like inside in a house up on top of a giant rock so i have to suck up everything on the map so the hole is big enough so every time you suck something in the hole gets slightly bigger um so you need to get the hole big enough to drop that entire rock and the house in all at once so that's one layer of the puzzle and that's very basic and you could go through the game just well from what i've played so far anyway you could go through the whole game just doing that just enjoying the cutscene, and you're not going to have a very challenging time but you you are going to have a fun time um just based on the like it's a very relaxing experience and the the dialogue is very well written and quite sharply funny uh, at different points but the thing i really like about it is that i've started doing so each level seems to have a number of different challenges to it that aren't necessarily made apparent but you can use the the hole and the way the hole interacts with things on the map to um solve kind of like to make the characters or objects do different things so there's a there's one the way i'll explain one to you is there's a desert and there's kind of like there's five trees and there's a caravan and there's a barbecue and there's a bird sitting on the barbecue and every time you navigate the hole over towards the barbecue the the crow will toss a piece of coal off the barbecue now if you grab if you Grab the coal with the hole. That's a very strange thing to say out loud. But if you can get the, the piece of coal to fall down into the hole and then you run by the, there's a campfire, uh, fire will start shooting out of the hole and you can, for a couple of seconds, set stuff on fire. And the achievement for that level is to set all five trees and the caravan on fire. So um, there are different things hidden like that in the game where you can kind of not go the straightforward route of just like in a few seconds knocking everything into the hole. Um, but yeah, it, it took the guy, I like this seems like I, I'm, I'm slagging it off, but like for a game that that's so simple in creation, this is clearly uh, very painstakingly and lovingly crafted because I, I read an interview that Ben Esposito was working on this game for nearly six years. Uh, and when you, you play it and you think about how, as I said, the simple, the mechanics of it are, you think, how did this game take nearly six years to come out? But when you peek beneath the surface at like those different challenges and when you look at the kind of 
the really I, I really love the art style of this game and I, I really love the as I said the dialogue and the cutscenes and, and and stuff like that when when you think about that it becomes more apparent that this was really like a pet project and it took so long because he wanted to do it right and he wanted it to kind of maybe reflect his best work and the kind of charming idea he had in his head but I, I definitely for it's only a few quid uh, I think uh, Donut County uh, very much recommended if you're looking for like a chill laid back experience what are you playing it on? Uh, I'm playing it on PS4 you've got it on PS4 okay yeah just because I, I haven't been I've been playing a lot of Switch lately so I felt the uh, the, the PS4 was a bit neglected so I went for that I'm probably going to get it on my Android tablet and uh, we'll, we'll see if there's anything that seems noticeably different I, I definitely think uh, just uh, that the hallmark of that it's built for Androids or for PCs or things like that is that in the menus and such, uh, my left analog stick controls a cursor that moves across the screen. <laughs> okay. So it was definitely it was definitely like uh, not built with consoles initially in mind, if you know what I mean. But it doesn't feel in any way like it's it's forced onto console, it, it still works. No, no, like that the bit in the menu is annoying where you have to drag the, the cursor across, but once you get into the actual puzzle, like that there's no other way that you would be moving the hole across the map only with the left analog stick, so it's fine. It's just in the menu, it like it's a thing from you play enough video games that are ports of PC games and that's one of the things when you spotted, you know, okay, this was originally a game designed for either touchscreens or for a PC and then ported over to standard consoles after. But it's not a, like a negative by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's just a small thing. There's, no, there's very little to do in the menu anyway, so you're not going to spend much time there. Cool. Uh, oh, before we move on as well, I, I know this is dragging it back to Minute, but I know <laughs> I went into the settings on Minute because um, there was a little glitch when I, I turned it back on and the music didn't start. And I was like, oh, did I did I turn off the music or something like that? But apparently, like, it, it, it's just I if you are playing it in handheld mode, put it into um, TV mode. Sometimes the music just drops out and you have to reboot the game to start the music again, which is very strange. But the reason I'm saying this is because I was in the menu. And one of the the options on the menu is to turn the game vegan. <laughs> and it's just it's just a vegan toggle and it goes on and off and literally nothing happens, I don't think, anyway. Nothing changes. It's just the game is now vegan. <laughs> well, I mean, I presume it means that you can't... Uh have any eggs or milk fall down the hole oh no no! this is minute oh sorry minute sorry i yeah yeah sorry i i was dragging it back because i literally just came into my head there as i was looking at my switch i have no idea what like maybe there's something late in the game that that kind of uh nods to the fact that you've toggled the vegan switch but yeah very very strange <laughs> uh, anyway let's talk about the news news on the mark Uh, Mark, it, it's kind of a week for game announcements as opposed to massive kind of great galloping shocks of, of scandals or anything like that. Uh, and the first thing I think we're going to go into is the one that had the the kind of the most announcement condensed into a single showcase. And that was the the Nindies showcase for, for late summer, early autumn 2018 uh, that kind of showed off what are the, the, the highlights of... Uh, independent games coming to the switch between now and early 2019 um i think 
one of the 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 real headliners here is that Hyper Light Drifter is finally coming to the the Switch. Uh, we have. I'm, I'm looking. Dave. Dave. The most important announcement here is that <laughs> Untitled Goose Game is coming to Nintendo yeah. Switch. You're very excited about that, and I'm excited too. I cannot play that game and see what the fuck it actually is. It's a game about being a bastard goose. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sell me a game. All right. <laughs> Uh, we've got Sword and Sorcery is coming to Nintendo Switch. Uh, one of my favorite things, and it's kind of like our second story here as well, one of my favorite things about this, I love a shadow drop, my friend, uh, when they say at the end of a thing, this game is out now, and a game I've been waiting to have a look at uh, for quite some time, but didn't want to buy it on PC in the hopes that it was coming to Switch, Into the Breach, the uh, real-time strategy game. Uh, just shadow dropped onto Switch all of a sudden. Uh, so I have that ready to go for when I finish Minute or when I finish Dead Cells. I would probably wager I'll finish Minute first. Um, but yeah, that's pretty cool. You, you, you've wanted to have a look at Into the Breach as well for a while, haven't you? I have, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm probably going to pick that up at some point. Um, also, uh, Towerfall is coming to yes. Switch. And... <clears throat> kind of similar to Towerfall in that because there was a a surge of local co-op games a couple of years ago uh, but a lot of them were on uh, PC Steam and um, like they some of them have slowly been making their way over to PS4 but one game that has me excited there's a game called Samurai Gun and there's a sequel for this coming out Uh, and Samurai Gun is this kind of um it's it's like a, a fighting game of sorts, but uh, each fight takes place in a very kind of short span of time. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think, kind of... Did you ever play uh, M+. No, I've watched you play it. Yeah, so it kind of has that sort of floaty platforming sort of uh, style to it. Um, but it's very quick, very fast-paced. Uh, like, every fight, you know, is over in a couple of seconds. Uh, and it's it's got little bits of that. It has little bits of Nidhogg. Um, but you can do up to... I think you could do up to, to four uh, players in this like big square environment arena. Uh, and it was... I, I remember I had one evening... Oh, sorry, one afternoon with uh, an old friend of mine. Um, and we were doing like three player. And it's, it's super, super addictive. So like that on the Switch, that has me really excited. Yeah, uh, it... Speaking of things coming out of the Switch that will get Mark Robinson excited, uh, September 18th finally sees the arrival of Undertale on Switch. Yeah. This kind, this kind of uh, followed the Nindies showcase. I don't think it was part of the showcase, was it? It was just an announcement that followed. Quite honestly, I, my first response was, oh wait, isn't this already on Switch? Yeah, well, do you remember we had at E3, I think it was, we had the trailer that said, Undertale coming to Switch eventually. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> um, I, I think... I. I think it was also as well because it was on PS Vita, um, mm. which is where I first played it. So, yeah. Um, it, it's a healthy bunch of games for the Nintendo Switch. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you think about it, like, within a few months you have, uh, we've already discussed, Minute, Dead Cells, and then you've got Hyper Light Drifter and Undertale coming very soon, and Into the Breach just arrived. Like, just from that collection of indie games alone... It's a robust library is growing on the Switch, I must say. They just they could make a category for the Switch and just call it like uh, solid indie games, and mm-hmm. that will be like half the fucking catalog at this point. Yeah. Um. So we got some. Speaking of stuff that just dropped, 
out of nowhere on a, on a console. Uh, here's a surprise from Eurogamer. Uh, Destiny 2 is available to download on PlayStation Plus from today. This was uh, Tuesday, I think, this dropped. Bungie Shooter joined Sony's subscription service ahead of the launch of the expansion Forsaken and a day after a big update for the game made sweeping changes to the way it works. So it's all well-timed. It's worth noting that on the 1st of December, all Destiny 2 players can play the new game mode Gambit for 24 hours. After that, you need the expansion to play it. Elsewhere, God of War 3 Remastered joins the PlayStation Plus lineup on September 4th. Uh, with knowledge as power uh, for Playlink and here they lie for PSVR uh, that were added last month um, the, the full lineup for September Destiny 2, God of War 3 Remastered knowledge as power, here they lie Another World 20th Anniversary Edition Cube, Director's Cut, Foul Play and Sparkle but that last one is a Vita exclusive um, yeah Mark uh in any way, are you tempted to play Destiny 2? Um, no, but I don't have PS Plus, so ah, yeah, know, I, that resolves that. I've I, I I'm considering downloading it and just giving it a go, but uh, I I would expect I will bounce off it roughly as quick as I bounced off the original Destiny, or as quick as I bounced off having Fortnite on the Switch. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um. Moving on from that, here was a surprise during the week, Mark. I don't know how much of this you got to see, but just fucking out of nowhere, CD Projekt Red just dropped, I think it's 48 minutes of solid gameplay footage. I'd call it a a healthy amount of video. Yeah, this was like, no one seemed to be expecting it. Uh, And I just kind of, I, I don't know whether it was that I woke up or I just logged on to Twitter and there's just a wall of like holy shit there's like nearly an hour's worth of this game is just after going up um did you get to have a look at any of it what yeah, do you think? I... Like, obviously this is you know pre pre-release footage uh big honking signs on it because they learned their lesson um with the the <laughs> let's just say the version they showed at this stage of development of witcher 3 did not graphically resemble the version of witcher 3 that came out i love that game to bits but it looked ungodly fantastic uh in the the preview and it it, they got a bit of heat for it not looking that quite that good when it came out yeah well i mean fuck those people because like it uh, it's a constant with like demos and previews of games that they usually end up looking a little bit better because they're only showing one specific part of the game like as long as you're not doing a fucking colonial marines a, a vertical slice as they call it yeah so, but even still, like, just in terms of that world, and that's the key thing, like, I don't care if there is a, a slight dip in, in graphical fidelity, whatever, like, that world um, is something that I want to get immersed in, I want to get lost in, you know? I, I don't know if you felt that way coming out of it, but... yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like, it it just, everything about it, I love how just vibrant the world feels, um, which is, you know, an open world. Obviously, CD Projekt Red have that shit down. Uh, The the Witcher 3 was a gorgeous open world, but I think very dour and grim. And, like, obviously, given the the subject matter, it was going to be. But this is just, it's, it's vibrant, it's bright i one of the things i loved apart from like i really like the hood of the the game as it exists at the moment um and kind of the different uh 
emergent moments of interacting with different characters mid-conversation, like as you're walking by them in the hall. That that stuff was cool. But the weird thing that got me really excited was like the heads-up display on your windscreen when you're driving your car. Uh, yeah, just there's a lot of little touches going on with it, and um, it just it. Hey, it's called Cyberpunk, a uh, Cyberpunk, Cyberpunk, and it you know lives and breathes by that name. Um, yeah. And just you know, I never played The Witcher, and the the biggest reasoning for not playing The Witcher was just the 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 content and the setting wasn't something that appeals to me. That yeah, you're not you're not a sword and sorcery guy. I'm really not. Uh, but cyberpunk yeah like it's it's full on uh anime but not anime and uh, i wanna i, I just want to dip my head into it uh, and get lost for a hundred hours yeah god damn right god damn right my friend uh moving on from that um capcom have been uh kind of surprising people left and right with different things coming out. Resident Evil 7 which knocked my socks off the uh, the, the Resi 2 remake that's being faithfully done and now Mark, you might be able to speak to this more than I can, Onimusha is coming back. I've never played Onimusha so I mean I had a bunch of people at work that were uh, just crying with joy. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is like, this is, so it's like the one, whenever Sony do their hashtag building the list of, oh, what games do you want us to bring back or bring over to PlayStation? Uh, people have been kind of like, oh, the Onimusha is the one they haven't. Like there's a, there's a small deluded crowd that are calling for Siphon Filter to come back um, as if that had reinvented the wheel on its initial run. But uh, Onimusha, it's definitely got its, its cult following. And Onimusha Warlords, uh, which was first launched in 2001 on PS2, sold over 2 million copies, is coming back. This new version includes a raft of new features, such as high-def graphics, widescreen support, new display options. You can switch between 4.3 and 16.9 aspect ratio at any time in the middle of the game. Um yeah so it looks like they've just gone in and kind of like with the the okami remaster as well they've just kind of put a nice spit shine and, and rebuilt that game for modern consoles coming out 15th of january 2019 i'm not an onimusha guy either by any stretch of the imagination but hey look it's a cool thing and, um and it's on the switch oh yes indeed <laughs> and you know everything should be released on switch god damn right i actually do you follow that account like i can't remember what it's called uh like e put everything on the switch or something like that <laughs> no i don't it's fantastic um like where there it, it ranges from stuff that really should be on the switch where you're like oh yeah that'd be really good on the switch to like hey splatoon 2 is on the switch what about getting splatoon 1 on the switch <laughs> Um, moving on from that, uh, speaking of games coming back from the dead, this is really a theme this week, Mark. Streets of Rage 4. I is... did not in <laughs> all my years. Um, now, I'm pretty sure there was rumors of a, a Streets of Rage 4. I can't remember what period I want to say. I, I want... It was either the late 90s or the early 2000s, and they were going to make a a 3d streets of rage game and i'm pretty sure there was like an early prototype or at least like images um yeah. because there have been over the years 
uh, 3D beat-em-ups that very much are like a homage to uh, Streets of Rage. Um, most of them are pretty terrible. There was one on the PS2 called The Bouncer, which is a very, very early PS2 game, which I went back to a few years ago and realised it was terrible, but I enjoyed it at the time. And like I, I mean, one of the first games that we ever did um, for the book club was Streets of Rage 2, because mm. it has... Uh, an incredible soundtrack that is used in, in clubs in Japan um, and just as a very fast, vibrant uh, combat system. Um, and yeah, it's just Streets of Rage 4. I, I was not expecting that one to be dropped. Um, and, I mean, I'm, hey, I'm pleasantly surprised and I absolutely will be picking that up. Uh, yeah, the I really like the uh, and it's 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 kind of a theme in common with the next game we're still talk about, and that's the kind of like anime style that it's got. Like it looks like a moving cartoon, yeah. uh, and I, I really appreciate that. Uh, and that is the an animation style that follows over to the next game that I never thought in a million years I'd be saying out loud: Windjammers Two. Yeah, I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> and. Both of these, it should be said, are coming from the same studio. It's Dot Emu, who are a French studio that went and found who owned the rights to Windjammers and bought it off them to re-release Windjammers on all the consoles. Um, early was it? Oh no, it was about a year ago because I, I just got in my memories on Facebook that I had um, I had downloaded Windjammers for PS4 last year. Um, so yeah, about a year ago that came out. It's about to come out because part of this announcement was Windjammers One is coming to Nintendo Switch uh, quite soon, I think, in October maybe. And then yeah, Windjammers Two, also in a kind of like anime style, is coming twenty nineteen. And like, holy shit, has like that game that no one was talking about pretty much like come back into existence because I'm pretty sure because of Giant Bomb. Oh, it's absolutely. It's, yeah. it's wholly because of that. And it's become a thing. And obviously Windjammers, the original, did well enough on PS4. Um, I think it's on Xbox as well. Uh, that now it's coming, it's getting a sequel, which is just fucking bananas. Although it has to be said, like looking at images of it, it really reminds me of Dive Kick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need Dive Kick too. Yeah, uh, I just hey like I that I hope is like a sign that um, original Windjammers did very very well financially. Uh, you would presume so. Um, I I'm curious to know what a kind of jazzed up high res uh, kind of s- slicker quality of animation style Windjammers will play like. Um, that has me curious. So and yeah, the, again, netcode is obviously netcode. the big oh, thing is going to be playing it online. Uh, netcode is pretty good on the PS4 port when jammers, from what I remember. Um, it'll be interesting to see what it's like when it comes to Switch. Um, but yeah, yeah when jammers too. What a mad should. world we live in, eh? Yeah. Um, speaking of mad world, uh, so we're getting almost up on the year anniversary mark of the loot box fiasco. Uh, from both uh, Middle Earth, Shadow of War, and then latterly and more famously Star Wars Battlefront 2. Um, and kind of the, the story's quietened down over the last few months. We haven't been following it as much on the show because, well, th- a, a lot of games coming out decided, oh, we're just going to fucking rip loot boxes out now and not face the heat. But 
what has happened in the intervening months is that two nations, namely the Netherlands and Belgium, have written laws uh, heavily restricting the use of uh, loot boxes in video games. Uh, they've gone down the route that we said is kind of like the worst case scenario for developers looking to put loot box in games, and that is to essentially uh, characterize loot boxes as gambling. Uh, which puts it in very problematic territory considering these games are theoretically uh, available for people of all ages and gambling should not be. So a couple of stories here where these new laws are forcing big developers, namely Blizzard and 2K, to change things within their games when they release on uh, within Belgium or the Netherlands. Uh, in an official post on Blizzard's forums, the company announced that paid loot boxes will be removed from Overwatch and Heroes of the Storm in reaction to the Belgian Gaming Commission's report in April, which classified Overwatch's loot boxes as gambling and therefore illegal. Uh, while we at Blizzard were surprised by this conclusion and do not share the same opinion, we have decided to comply with their interpretation of Belgian law. <laughs> I like the way they went, while we don't agree, we believe the Belgians probably know about Belgian law. Uh, as a result, we have no choice but to implement measures that will prevent Overwatch and Heroes of the Storm players located in Belgium from purchasing in-game loot boxes and loot chests with real money and gems. Uh, now, Mark, the question before I move over to the 2K uh, of it all, um, I think the question here is, like, obviously, I'm all in favor of not giving people the opportunity to waste untold amounts of their own money on stuff like this. But is it worth putting in that it's not going to make a seismic change to these games when it's just two smaller European countries doing it? That, like, it would really only feel like the end of loot boxing if we could get, like, a, a, one of the larger markets on board? Or do you think this is an important stand and when Belgium and the Netherlands are doing it, maybe other countries might eventually follow suit? Yeah, that's what I was thinking as you were talking about it there, that these are, well, still notable, two uh, countries that I would imagine have a, a significantly smaller penetration when it comes to games like Overwatch in terms of the the money that's rolled in through loot boxes and whatnot. Um, it will be interesting to see if other countries follow suit. What would be more interesting is if the EU in general was to follow suit because then at that point it would be interesting to see you know, how accommodating Blizzard would want to be or if they would really uh, attempt to, to push back or double down on this idea that um, no, loot boxes are, are not gambling uh, as EA have been doing with the uh, trading card game. So... Mm -hmm. I don't know how this is going to go down. Um, I, I will want to keep a close eye on this. I would like to see other countries, uh, not more prominent countries, but certainly uh, countries that could have a, a significantly larger influence on this kind of thing, um, mm. at least really uh, knuckle down and, and discuss this. Um, and but yeah, it's it's the EU. That's the one that if if they decide to to get on board with this, that's really yeah. gonna uh, change a number of things about uh, financial models w within video games um, that have definitely 
definitely been in pushing towards loot boxes and that style of, of monetization um, and and whether you uh, agree with it or not or whether you are okay with it in the uh, situations where it's just you know visually visual aesthetic items nothing that uh, affects the actual gameplay um, there are people that are spending a lot of money on these kinds of things and um, if you whether you agree with it's gambling or not and you know people are free to do with their money what they want it's um, it can be a bit worrying you know seeing the amount of money that gets spent um, on not just video games but anything in general but definitely like the, the content that, that they're paying for yeah absolutely um another follow-up from 2k because this is after affecting uh nba 2k uh according to rock paper shotgun two undated statements on the basketball arcade games website detail how the developers had to strip the option to buy my team packs in belgium and the netherlands based on these rules um so it, it would seem that developers are starting to feel the pinch in these countries uh we shall wait and see um how this this works in the future or not uh mark finishing things up here with the news talk to me spelunky 2 <laughs> well um we don't know exactly i mean i don't know yet um i haven't looked too much into what it will be and, and how similar it will follow the first one but um it definitely you know if it ain't broke don't fix it but Hey, I was never expecting we'd get a sequel to Spelunky. I'm, I don't know. It's gonna be interesting to see how the magic is captured that first one in a way that it feels different enough to the first one, but isn't just a, a clone of the first one. But it can't be yeah. too different from the first one. So I can just see it being kind of like with Binding of Isaac, where it's just it's a refinement and, and additional items are added, and you know, because there's there's loads of different items that could be added, and loads of different ways that traversing through those environments could be done. So uh, and and I imagine there'll be a, a ton of hidden secrets, and because that's one of the, the joys of Spelunky is all the hidden things that I didn't even realize were things that existed until years later like there was stuff in mm. Danny O'Dwyer's um, uh, a video series, a noclip series about Spelunky where uh, I was finding out things that just I was never aware of so yeah uh, Spelunky 2 again like a lot of stuff we've uh, mentioned today highly surprised and you know I, of course I'm going to play it because um the more I think about it, like the original Spelunky, if I was to think about like the game that I a played the most and and just spent just got the most out of uh, during that Xbox 360 PS3 era merging into the PS4 era, like it's probably up there in the top three. Hmm. Uh, that's going to do it for the news this week uh, and now it's time to move into the Linked Cast Book Club where we talk about an important game from the past that you should play for the first time if you haven't before, play again if it's been a while uh, this week Mark, we're going to get a little bit weird, uh, we're going to the N64 and we're going to talk about a game called Mystical Ninja starring Goemon
Mystical Ninja starring Goemon, known as Ganbare Goemon Neo Momoyama Bakfu no Odori, which I only said because I enjoy how it translates directly as Go For It Goemon, Dance of the Neo Peach Mountain Shogunate. <laughs> is a platform action-adventure video game released by, of all people, Konami for the Nintendo 64 on August 7th, 1997, and Japan, uh, sorry, in Japan, and April 16th, 1998 in North America as the fifth entry in the Ganbare Goemon series, the second Goemon game released in North America. It follows the legend of Mystical Ninja and features hybrid elements of platform games and action-adventure games. The story follows Goemon's struggles to prevent the Peach Mountain Shogun's gang from turning Japan into a westernized fine arts theater. The plot calls for three cinematical musical features and battles between giant robots like other Ganbare Goemon games. It is peppered with surrealist humor and anachronisms. Mark. Before we kind of get into the 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 kind of the very very strange game that is Mystical Ninja starring Goemon, I, I think it's worth talking about the the era we grew up playing video games in. Um, because there were these things around, so this makes us feel like old timers now, Mark, because they've been gone for a few years at this point. Video game rental stores. So I never really. Um... <clears throat> dealt with uh rental stores um oh. like we had did you have you have blockbusters over here uh we a uh, blockbuster over here was called chartbusters okay right so we had blockbusters and we we had games and films and whatnot but i never I never really rented games it was never something mm-hmm. that um my my mum did um and by the time that i was living with my grandparents um like I, I either just get games bought for me, or I started working like a year later, so I just buy my own games. So yeah, so yeah. I never really did renting. So like, the great thing about the video game rental was that it was basically like an extended demo. Um, growing up, if there was a game coming out for the the N sixty four, obviously being the first home console I had, that was all my own. Um. If there was an N64 game coming out that I wasn't sure, because as we've noted before, I was an avid reader of Nintendo Official Magazine at the time. Um, if there was a game coming out, I wasn't sure if I wanted to play it or I, I wanted to have just a look at it or something like that. It was about the same cost as renting a VHS for the weekend. So my, my dad or my mom would go down to Charposters or Textrovision and they'd be taking out a movie for us to watch over the weekend. And on occasion, if I was well behaved enough, Mark, I would get get to pick a game as well while we were there. And a lot of the weird and wonderful early experiences I have in console gaming are are down to stuff I just rented on a whim. There's stuff I suspected I'd like. I'm pretty sure the first time I played Pokemon Snap was when it was rented. The first time I think I played the original Super Smash Brothers was rented. Um... And then there's this game. And, like, so I'm... When this game comes out, I'm about eight or nine years old. And my knowledge of the the fine nation of Japan, Mark, was relatively low at the time. I, I had very little knowledge of the, the cultural exports of Japan, especially compared to now. I, I had experienced Power Rangers 
uh, for the the previous couple of years. This would have been shortly before I started getting into Pokemon. But I I don't even think I knew Power Rangers was Japanese. No, I I didn't yeah. realize until years later that like the actual uh, Power Rangers part of Power Rangers was mm. like taken from a Japanese show. I yeah. my fucking mind was blown when that. Mm. Uh, and then obviously you watch Power Rangers now and you're like, well, of course this is Japanese. Yeah. Uh, and so when Pokemon came out, Pokemon was the first one I knew, oh, this is Japanese because before, the, like around the time the cartoons started coming out here was when you heard the stories of the, the kids in Japan getting seizures from, was it the episode with Porygon? Yeah, that was the one. Yeah, so we heard about that. So it's like, oh, this is from Japan, Nintendo game. Okay, okay, Japan, get it. Uh, so it was a long time before I was introduced to, say, the Shonen Jump genre of, of anime with, like, Dragon Ball. This was before Gundam Wing was on every five minutes on Cartoon Network, uh, all that sort of good stuff. So for people who kind of, like, were of age and understood Japan when these Goemon games were coming out and they were popular, um, that was one thing. I want everyone to get into the mindset as we have a brief discussion about Koemon here. An eight-year-old who has no concept of not just anime tropes or Japanese uh, tropes or inside jokes or anything like that, but no real notion of anime as a concept. And it should be noted that Goemon is really fucking Japanese. Oh, it is. like I, I, As we'll, we'll, we'll get into here, it, it is as i said at the start of the show peak japan <laughs> it is it is it is everything about anime that i love and still don't understand turned up to 11 but just imagine what the the sheer levels of confusion that go on in the head of an eight-year-old who has never seen an anime in their fucking life and then turns on this game um let's go back to did you say to me before you had played the the pre the, pre, the predecessor to this game legend of mystical ninja on no the SNES? What, what i said to you is that uh, ah. my friend at work actually dropped a copy of that on my desk at work the other ah. day. so um i know of it i've watched footage of it uh, i think at some point i'm probably gonna go back and play it um uh, probably in like emulated form because from watching footage of it it looks like well, it looks like a hybrid. This is the, the SNES one, right? Yeah, it looks like a hybrid of a number of games, and all of them look pretty good. Yeah, and that is that is kind of what the N sixty four one as well is. It's very much a hybrid. Um, like there are definitely a lot of platforming elements to it, and kind of trying to navigate the um the the little world that you're in. Um, but then there's also a lot of a lot of aspects of it that remind me of the kind of open world adventure games that kind of became some of my my, my favorite things on the N64. Like it, not quite obviously the level of an Ocarina of Time, but that same kind of like, here's the world, go have a fucking look at it, which at the time was a very novel concept. Um, and what a strange world it was to go explore. Um, what is your history with this game mark I, because I, I went through that i got this on a fucking whim and it melted my brain so i didn't play this game immediately when it came out um i would be playing stuff like ocarina of time before and i always forget that goemon did come out a year before ocarina of time and we think about ocarina of time as this uh milestone in in video games history which is rightly so 
Um, but there are, there are elements of that game that were done a year earlier. And you can make the point, and you'd probably be right, that Ocarina of Time did most of those things better, uh, or certainly refined them. But they do appear first in, in Goemon. Uh, and I'd imagine, just like you, uh, I was this doe-eyed child playing this weird-ass Japanese game not really knowing what was going on but I mean as a, a kind of platforming combat type game it, it it would tick all the boxes that of games I'd be playing of that nature anyway so um, that's for sure yeah so just taking all of it in and I haven't played it in many many years and I imagine there is a lot of that game that would have been lost on me as a child that I would uh, have a newfound appreciation for as an adult yeah, I, I think so. I, I, like, I, I've really been tempted to go into Dublin this week because I have a week. It's my last week off before I start my new job. I've been tempted to actually go and, and pick up this game and play it. And I, I, I might end up doing that tomorrow, to be honest. Um, but yeah, so like I, I look I look back at this game. So I've watched several long plays of it now. And just trying to get back into the mindset of what is it I, I so enjoyed about the game? Because obviously this game has stuck with me in my head, despite me not owning it, for 20 years now. So there's something going on there, you know what I mean? There's there's something appealing about it. And obviously the parts of me that were the, the un- untested anime fan that would later go on to absorb entirely too much Dragon Ball Z... Uh, really enjoyed something about it. Um, if you watch even the opening cinematic for this game, um, it's got like just a, just a magnificent anime style opening ditty. Uh, then it when you when you get into the game proper, it seems to be opening on this really nice kind of feudal Japan style setting. Whenever you think of like very stereotypical Japanese village, that seems to be the setting it's set in. Then all of a sudden, like, there's a fucking spaceship, like, just comes across the horizon, and there's this, like, Shogun gang, and it all gets a little bit weird, and then you meet your main character, Goemon, and his best mate, whose name fucking escapes me here. Oh, here we go. And the characters. Uh, what the god? Oh, Ebisumaru. Ebisumaru, uh, yeah. Yeah, his, his, his best mate, who is introduced to you basically streaking. Um, he is he is running through the village covered by a, a very skimpy loincloth and he is, shall we say, a man of carriage with some um, outrageous facial hair. So there's definitely, as well as having a lot of the, the what I would later come to understand as anime tropes, um, such as the kind of the feudal Japanese stuff, like even when you look at, at Dragon Ball Z, the anime, there's stuff like it. Uh, there's a lot of traditional Japanese influence to the way buildings are drawn in it. Um, but but stuff like that, there's always, in it seems to me, in, in a lot of anime, particularly in Shonen Jump anime, there's one like lewd or gross or weird character. Like this is essentially the Master Roshi of Mystical Ninja. <laughs> this this ebi sumaru character and then, but after you kind of get introduced to oedo town where where you're where you're you start um you start playing the game and it's just like it's it, it's gonna be hard for us to convey in 2018 to people who weren't it it feels kind of cheap to say you had to be there but 
it was still a novelty at the time, Mark, to be able to control a camera in a 3D space and to see, like, I'm in a big village that has both width and depth. And if I want to go over behind that house and see what's going on over there, or if I want to go jump into that lake or whatever, I can go there and I can explore it. And there, there's definitely, um, and it comes from part of the anime influences the whole thing. There's a real charm to the world, which is not something that, you would get that often in 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 this period of time anyway it's kind of like um there is a bit of a a crossover between ocarina of time and super mario 64 in that Mm. there are a number of these different worlds and environments to explore that um some of them don't really feel particularly connected in the way that you know you would go into different paintings in super mario 64 and but the the, the level of uh, creativity or originality and uniqueness in some of these environments uh, yeah. is so vibrant and so colourful, um, particularly for that time, as yeah. we were you know making that transition from the, the 2D to the 3D. And the yeah. simple fact is there are a lot of 3D games in 96 and 97 that are fucking ugly as sin. Yeah. Um, and it's not that Gaimon is, is a looker in 2018, but... Um, I think that for its time, I think that it still holds up in the uh, the presentation of the world that it, it tries to convey. For sure. Um, one of the things that I love about the world is, and it's another thing barred from anime, and that's the idea that, like, so the stakes and the kind of internal logic uh, of the motivations of these characters and the, the things you're doing here takes itself very seriously, but in an an inherently ridiculous world so the the speed the spaceship i mentioned at the start is shaped like a peach and they're trying to use lasers to convert the nation of japan into a stage and the citizens of japan into dancers i mean honestly this is a game that should have been on the dreamcast it's oh it's yeah it is dreamcast levels of yeah fuck let's just throw weird ideas at the wall and see what sticks um and I love that this game is, like, for the, the time it was released, is so ambitious in as much as you have Ocarina of Time coming out that is the most ambitious adventure game uh, we've seen to that point uh, with this big, huge open world of Hyrule to, to enjoy and discover and explore and get immersed in. And you also have, with the launch of the console, Super Mario 64, which is the most uh, one of the most ambitious Mario game in terms of what it's doing mechanically. Uh, and two, it's the first of the games of this generation trying to figure out how to use that camera in a 3D space. And Mystical Ninja Star and Goemon comes out and goes, you know, we like the platformer and we like the adventure game. So we're going to have both here. Because there, there is an element of, like, there are things you're supposed to do, objectives you're supposed to accomplish, places you're supposed to go. We're going to try and stop Japan getting turned into this giant stage and everybody turned into giant dancers. But at the same time, uh, a lot of the, the, the puzzles or the, the ways to traverse to get to your objective uh, involve platforming segments. And just the kind of like you say about that it seems that the snes version is kind of similar it is a a hybrid that you can't really put it in one box or the other can you no um i yeah it it finds that blend between the the two games mentioned and it it just it has such a 
an originality to uh, like you know you you explain that story and that concept and the motivation and you know it, you are hard pressed to find uh, a game that matches it with that level of weirdness um, as kind of you, you said it's peak Japan um, but it does have it's not just kind of weird for the sake of being weird like the the four characters that you can play as like they there is warmth to them um and they all have their different uh, abilities and you can swap between any of the characters in in uh, any time you want um and you know they all have their different abilities and you can use them to get around the environment and it has uh you know elements of backtracking about it it's not like a game that is is renowned for its uh, clever game design it's it's pretty yeah. uh, standard by t- today's standard but again you know it, this is 1997 we're talking about this is still the embryonic stage of 3d worlds and it's really when i think about it, it it's pretty friggin' revolutionary for some of the shit that it does yeah no without a doubt um i <laughs> i i really enjoy like the the one I think Japanese trope that I I did absolutely recognize based on my enjoyment of Power Ranger is that there are battles that take place inside giant robots. Yes. And <laughs> at the at the time in in the nineties, I thought this is the coolest shit ever because I am a Power Rangers kid. This is awesome. When I look back at the <laughs> the 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 for want of a better term Megazord that you are controlling in uh, Mystical Ninja, it is the stuff of nightmares, my friend. <laughs> Uh, it, you know, it kind of makes me want to go back and watch Power Rangers now, and and yeah, I think that's what's going to come out of of this show is me wanting to go back and watch some OG Power Rangers. I think that's all on um, Netflix. Did I hear someone on a podcast say recently? So you could enjoy that. I know Pokemon is. Well, Pokemon should be on every platform. Indeed. Um, but like, do you think that the like the general kind of because it's a very surreal game and it has very surreal mm-hmm. humor which is is very japanese in its nature when it comes to a lot of that humor is surreal um do you think that any of that holds up or do you think that to a, like, um, a modern audience that it just it wouldn't make any sense to, honestly in some respects because of the kind of um western culture has unfortunately reappropriated but certainly been more open to a lot of um japanese anime uh, and humor and, and culture uh in the the interceding 20 years that I, I think maybe the average person now is going to have a better foundational knowledge going to this game if you get like it's not going to go over a lot of people's heads as much i think i got the the experience that someone who has literally never experienced anime got but most kids growing up these days like if if you watch the kind of the the kids tv block in the evenings there is a lot of very japan influenced western shows going on so yeah they may not get um something as specific as like the um what are they called the onigiri rice balls which are the like you see them pop up in anime all the time the yeah. like triangular yeah, rice yeah, balls yeah. with the black and the yeah i remember 
for years I thought they were Japanese donuts. And the reason I thought <laughs> that was because of the dub of Dragon Ball Z, where instead of explaining what they are, they just call them donuts. Sure, sure. Uh, and it was only years later I found out what onigiri are. Um, so, like, I think maybe people who aren't immersed in Japanese culture aren't going to get something as specific as that. But I think the broad strokes of the surreal humor um, and, and, and such will ring home better with the young people of today than than of 20 years ago. But I don't see a lot of young people today, unless they're being raised truly correctly, uh, cracking out the N64 necessarily. Um, uh, give me your elevator pitch. Okay. Mystical Ninja starring Goemon is... It's not going to be the the best game you've played from the N64 era. It's not... It's not making a top five or top ten personal list, but it is a very, very strange little game that tries to be like a greatest hits of what the N64 was known for, both in terms of platforming and in terms of adventure. I think it's a very funny game. I think it's a very strange game, as I said. I think it's still eminently playable. The, as with a lot of games of that era, the camera is not necessarily cooperative all the time, but if you can get over that, it is still quite playable, quite entertaining, and, you know, you you could definitely do a lot worse uh, than playing Mystical Ninja starring Goemon. So yeah, that's, that's that for episode 121. Mark, one last bit of business, as always. Tell us what you are picking from the vaults for next week. So, I don't think we have jumped into this series yet and i don't think there's many games in the series that would be viable to talk about for what we not that we have like strict rules or qualifiers for what we talk about on this show but this one in particular i think definitely um is one we should talk about uh if we're only going to ever talk about one game in this series and i'm going to take us back to 2013 and i want to talk about assassin's creed black flag oh okay that's an interesting one. Uh, we did. I did speak. We haven't spoken really at length about Assassin's Creed on this show, but I did on my my appearance on Staying In a few months ago. Uh, we we talked about the Assassin's Creed series. Not not being a huge fan of it necessarily, but I appreciate no, some of the things. It does. Uh, so be a good discussion. I am the same, but I do think that um, for what that game is uh, and for the settings yeah. that they can choose, I think Black Flag. Uh, I think it does the best, but we will discuss that next week. Yeah. Assassin's Creed Black Flag for episode 122. That's going to do it for another episode of Link to the Cast. This podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and most podcasting platforms. Just search for Link to the Cast. Subscribe there, rate us, review, tell a friend. It all helps. We've seen a bump in listeners over the last few weeks. We really like to keep that drive going. So tell two friends this week instead of one. uh, And hopefully by uh, a series of whispers, people will start listening to Link to the Cast, Purple Monkey Dishwasher. Uh, If you want to get in touch with us, the website is linked to the cast.eu if you want to contact us directly link to the cast at gmail.com is the email address but social media is the best way to both get in contact with us directly and keep up to date on content as it is posted facebook.com forward slash link to the cast and at link to the cast on twitter for that uh 
on Twitter individually. I am at the day to Dave, and Mark is at Lithium Project. If games aren't your only interest, though, we may have the podcast for you right here in this feed. Uh, the Grap Up, which is our once every few months pro wrestling podcast, generally including some combination of myself, Mark, uh, Jack Lazell, or Barry Murphy from the Chair Shot, the Chair Shot podcast. Uh, our most recent show was way back at WrestleMania week, but we are gearing up because we've got the May Young Classic. We've just had SummerSlam. There's a bunch of shit going on at the moment that we may need to sit down and have a chat about one of these weeks coming up soon. So look forward to one of those uh, appearing at some stage. Uh, the other show we have in this feed, The Popcorn Social, which is a monthly deep dive into the latest cinema offerings with myself and Jack Lazell. And we also bring one of our favorites from the past to the table uh, on every single show. Uh, there is one up from last month there. Now, myself and Jack will be sitting down next week to record... Uh, our new popcorn social where we're going to be talking about uh, all the latest things we've seen in the cinema. We've, we've both seen a fair few new things. And then I think our movies for that episode are going to be the uh, slightly tonally different movies, Mark of Amy, the Amy Winehouse documentary and gone in 60 seconds, the Nicolas Cage classic. Yeah. That's a bit of a fucking juxtaposition. <laughs> Indeed. These podcasts, plus our weekly Link to the Cast flagship broadcast, are all available in this one podcast feed. So just subscribe to the Link to the Cast on your favorite podcasting platform, and that should do it. And of course, if there's any game that you think uh, we should cover, we might have already covered it. So search over on linktothecast.eu or within your podcast search engine. Have a look to see if we have already done it. Download that show, listen away. And if we haven't, you know what? Shoot us an email. Say, hey, guys, have you thought about covering this game? Because we probably haven't. We are idiots. For episode 121 of Link to the Cast, I have been Dave Ryan. Man of the line here has been Mark Robinson. We shall see you all next week. And hopefully we will be able to record on the first try.